listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 253. We're talking about wildcat oil strikes in the UK and the energy crisis with historian Ewan Gibbs. Before we move on to the news, just a quick word about how you can support us. If you appreciate our independent labor journalism and want to support our work and want to keep it free for everyone to download, you can contribute to our small production team by going to our Patreon. That's patreon.com belabored. And now for the news. For over a decade, the Fight for 15 movement has been advocating for decent wages and working conditions for fast food workers. And one of the biggest challenges has been pushing for labor protections and standards that cover all workers in the fast food sector. It's extremely difficult to regulate and to unionize because it's essentially fractionated across thousands of franchisees, each of which operate as an individual employer, even though it's basically an extension of whatever big fast food brand it represents, like McDonald's or Wendy's. But in recent years, there have been a number of local initiatives that have implemented targeted regulations and standards specifically for fast food workers, such as New York State's $15 minimum wage scheme for fast food workers. Now California might become the first state to enact a statewide framework that allows fast food workers to have a direct say in setting standards for their sector. The FAST Act, which just passed the state assembly and is heading for a Senate vote, would apply a sectoral regulatory model across the state by creating a new oversight body, the Fast Food Sector Council, which would establish, quote, minimum fast food restaurant employment standards, including standards on wages, working conditions, and training, unquote. It might also expand protections against sexual harassment. The council would be comprised of 11 government appointees, including five representing various government agencies, one representative of fast food franchisors, those are the big brands, one representative of fast food franchisees, those are the individual employers who run the stores, and two representatives of fast food restaurant workers, as well as two advocates for fast food labor. Crucially, the bill would place responsibility for compliance with the new standards on the franchisors, the McDonald's and Papa John's of the world, rather than the franchisees. That has been a major sticking point in federal labor law, how to establish direct legal liability for these mega corporations for the labor conditions in the workplaces that are run by individual franchisees. According to the Center for American Progress, quote, of occupations in California with more than 100,000 workers, only farm workers earn less, averaging wages of $13.25 an hour. Benefits in the fast food industry are also low, with estimates suggesting that just 13% of core frontline fast food workers receive health benefits through their employer. Employers often provide work hours and schedules with little notice, with workers sometimes receiving their schedules only a few days in advance and their hours varying greatly from week to week. Not surprisingly, turnover in the industry is very high, more than 100% according to industry estimates, meaning that each job needs to be filled more than once per year. As we've reported on Belabored before, the Fight for 15 tried for years to get the National Labor Relations Board to issue a ruling that would establish joint employer status for fast food brands. If companies like McDonald's were deemed to be joint employers of all their franchisees' employees, the shared legal liability would open the door to potentially creating a collective bargaining relationship between McDonald's and all McDonald's employees nationwide. But that case before the NLRB was eventually scuttled by the board under Trump. The FAST Act doesn't directly enable collective bargaining for all fast food workers in the state, but the regulatory scheme parallels the sectoral bargaining framework that is used by unions in many European countries to establish wages and standards across entire industries, rather than the individual shop-by-shop approach that is common in the U.S., where sectoral bargaining is actually illegal. 
According to Ben Sachs at the On Labor blog, quote, the FAST Act will not facilitate unionization or enable collective bargaining, although worker organizations might take advantage of the council as a nexus for organizational activity. But through its sectoral design, the act does constitute a viable and important regulatory approach to dealing with problems endemic to a fissured industry like fast food, unquote. The council would ideally ensure that worker input is an integral part of this regulatory strategy, and the structure of the body would facilitate some form of tripartite negotiation among labor, corporate, and government actors. The FAST Act might get a vote in the Senate this month, and if it ends up becoming law, it could become a model for other states. While business groups are lobbying hard against it, criticizing the legislation as government overreach and a potential blow to the franchise business model, Labor advocates hope the FAST Act lays the groundwork for a sectoral bargaining-type framework that could be implemented on the federal level. For now, California's fast food workers could be on the verge of leaping from the dregs of the food service industry to the vanguard of a new way of organizing and representing workers. Not at the bargaining table quite yet, but certainly in the statehouse. Last week, I was talking to friend of the show, Eric Loomis, for a story I'm working on. And we got into a conversation about whether the tools and tactics of the CIO would work in today's workplaces. Particularly, we chatted a bit about whether the sit-down strike would work as well in a cavernous Amazon warehouse as it did in a packed car factory. Then Amazon workers in Britain had to go and prove that a sit-down strike would indeed work in an Amazon warehouse because they had one, or rather, they had several. The wildcat strikes that spread across eight warehouses in Britain are now in their second week, and include sit-down actions in the warehouse canteen, slowdowns where workers process just one package an hour to ensure that they still get paid, while challenging the company's demanding expectations. The strikes began at the warehouse in Tilbury, Essex, where after workers were offered a raise of just 35 pence an hour, at a moment when inflation has hit 10% in the country, hundreds of workers stopped work and sat down in the canteen. The night shift continued the action, as did the next day shift. Workers told Novara Media, We are still protesting here. They are not listening to us. We want our pay to be as per the current inflation rate. 35 pence is unfair. No one agrees. We have stopped working and we sat down in one of the main canteens here at Amazon Warehouse. Another worker said, For everyone, rolling sentiment was the pay offer was a kick in the teeth. During COVID, we were still required to come in and work. Many people made sacrifices. Many workers felt it was shameful from Amazon Tilbury. Many workers are trained in multiple areas. So in a day, a worker could be going to pack, then stow, then picking. All extra jobs for just 35 pence more. End quote. While some Amazon workers at these warehouses are members of unions, including GMB and the United Voices of the World, the unions are not leading the protests which seemed to be spreading virally over social media, with videos from inside the warehouses shared all over. The workers are calling for a £2 an hour raise, and GMB has submitted a formal pay claim for £15 an hour pay. But the company has not recognized any of the unions, and it is not required to unless the union's membership gets to 50% of the workers, at which time it can apply to the Central Arbitration Committee, which would force the company to recognize it, and that would enable it to collectively bargain and take strike votes at a particular facility. But at the moment, the workers seem less interested in getting to union recognition and more interested in the power that they're building on the shop floor. Will the strikes continue? What kinds of new tactics might they come up with? Or which kinds of old tactics might they revive? We'll have to see what happens. It's been a busy couple of weeks for Starbucks Workers United, the organization that is helping unionize Starbucks stores across the country. Starbucks workers in Santa Cruz went on a three-day strike on August 13th, and in Lakewood and Barstow, California, workers went on strike on August 15th, citing retaliation and discrimination against pro-union employees. 
Starbucks Workers United estimates that there have so far been about 55 Starbucks strikes across 17 states. Meanwhile, the company appears to be intensifying its anti-union campaign. Workers have accused the company of threatening to deny benefits to workers if they support the union. Retaliatory firings have been reported in the Pittsburgh area, where a worker said on social media that she had been fired allegedly for being two minutes late to work, when in fact she believed that it was linked to her pro-union stance. And in the Buffalo area, lead organizer Sam Amato was fired abruptly, triggering a walkout by his co-workers as well as a viral TikTok video. And in Augusta, Georgia, another lead organizer, Jason Saxton, was dismissed for what the management called, quote, multiple disruptive actions, unquote, at a union protest. And now Starbucks seems to be trying to go after the National Labor Relations Board itself by charging misconduct by the agency staffers who have been administering union elections. Still, Starbucks Workers United seems to be on a tear. So far, more than 180 Starbucks stores nationwide have voted to unionize. While we can't report on the ground from all the different Starbucks locations where this drama has been unfolding, I was able to do some local Starbucks coverage here in Ithaca, New York. I'm here on Academic Exile, and it just so happens that Ithaca is the only city in the U.S. where all Starbucks locations have gone union. It used to be three stores, and now unfortunately it's down to two due to the controversial closure of one location earlier this summer, which workers say was retaliation for their union activism. I caught up with Stephanie Heslop and Ben South, current and former Starbucks employees, respectively, on August 6th, a Solidarity Day for supporters of the Starbucks union. South was recently fired, he says in retaliation for his organizing activity. Heslap believes she and her co-workers are facing massive anti-union pressure from management, but she's toughing it out to keep the union going at her store. So when I caught up with him outside of a Starbucks at a strip mall, it ended up being sort of a muted demonstration. Interestingly, on the day that the community members were supposed to show up and have a solidarity sip-in, that's when you order cups of water to show support for the union, Starbucks decided to abruptly close one of the two remaining Starbucks locations downtown, and the other location, the one at the strip mall, was only partially operating, doing only drive through orders instead of counter service. It was almost like Starbucks was trying to keep the day of action from happening. Anyway, here's Heslop talking about the issues workers have been facing as the company has stepped up its anti-union campaign. The way they've cut people's hours, the way they've prevented people from getting promotions because of supporting the union, they have reduced our hours without negotiating with the union, which they're supposed to do. That was a unilateral decision. But on the other hand, they aren't extending uh, the benefits to us that the non-union stores are getting. And they're saying that, oh, it's because we have to negotiate with the union, even though the union has said, no, we want that. So, like, it doesn't make sense. And here's South, talking about how the union has managed to build strong support both among workers and in the surrounding community. Our no votes are also still people who are part of our union, so when we need to be there for them, we'll be there for them. And sometimes that's what it takes to make people realize who's actually on your side. Have you managed to, uh, like, I guess turn lots of people or like take, take people from no to yes or is it not that um, dramatic? At the college house store they closed we got someone who I thought would never even consider being part of a union to uh, be a part of the union and that person actually came out here today as well and was helping us hand out flyers so it's definitely happened and it definitely can happen. As of right now these companies still have the leverage to union bust, but now it's very apparent. People see through it. The most important part is that customers are seeing through it. 
Starbucks doesn't listen to anything but money. So now that like all these workforces are mobilizing in industries that depend on the money and support of people that come in, I think it's going to be a really different landscape for workers in about a year or two. That was Stephanie Heslop and Ben South, two activists with Starbucks Workers United in Ithaca, New York. Collectivism. It's about tapping into all of the good, decent people that are out there helping people day in, day out. I think people have realised it doesn't matter what the crisis is, whether it's the financial crisis of 2008, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the current cost of living crisis, or whether it's the emergency uh, climate crisis, we are in a position where working people always pay the price. That was Dave Ward of the Communications Workers Union from the Enough is Enough campaign launch. And good morning from London, where once again the strikes are on. Specifically, on Thursday as I record this, the Rail, Maritime, and Transport Union, RMT, and Transport Salaried Staff Association, TSSA, rail workers are on strike once again. And Friday, as this podcast drops, transit in London will be next to impossible as workers on the London Underground, Overground, and even some of the buses will be on strike. The bus drivers are members of Unite the Union, and the tube workers are also members of the RMT. If I have to be stuck at home all day on a Friday, a massive transit strike is indeed my favorite reason. You have heard about the reasons for the rail strikes, pay, job cuts, the attempts to pair back services in our July 22nd interview with Alex Gordon from RMT, and the tube strikes are over funding questions for Transport for London, TFL. Mick Lynch from the RMT told reporters, This strike action by our members on London Underground and the Overground is yet another demonstration of how transport workers refuse to accept a raw deal. TFL have had ample opportunity to be transparent about the funding they will receive and to give tube workers the assurances they need, yet they have totally failed to give those guarantees. And Sharon Graham from Unite said of the bus strike, The workers' parent company, RATP, is fabulously wealthy and it can fully afford to pay our members a decent wage increase. Unite's members play a crucial role in keeping London moving, and they are not going to accept seeing their pay constantly eroded, end quote. This is just the latest example of the unions aligning their strikes and their power to cause maximum disruption for maximum leverage. And this week, too, saw the launch of the Enough is Enough campaign, which is led by the RMT, CWU, and the University and College Union, alongside Zara Sultana MP, who is one of the new young labor MPs not afraid to join a picket line and stand up to the right-leaning labor leadership, as well as Tribune Magazine and community groups including ACORN and the Right to Food campaign. The launch event on Wednesday evening felt more like a rock show than a union rally, with a packed music venue selling drinks and Enough is Enough t-shirts, alongside tables from the related organizations, and speeches drawing massive cheers for nationalizing industries, strikes, social housing, trans rights, and much more. Dave Ward from the CWU also announced the results of the second postal workers' strike vote, in which 98.7% of the workers voted to strike the Royal Mail. Many of the speakers directly called out Keir Starmer and the Labour leadership and criticized the two Tory leadership candidates. And probably most importantly, the union leaders spoke of the need to represent the entire working class, not just union members. They criticized their own movement for not struggling harder for the whole class in the 70s and the 80s during the waves of privatization, and talked about working in partnership with community organizations and coming up with actions that people can take, regardless of whether or not they are in a union. 
Of course, they encourage people to join a union if they aren't already in one. A reminder for your U.S. listeners and elsewhere that in Britain, you can sign up as a union member without having to organize your entire workplace, though obviously the union has much more power if it has official recognition. The campaign plans to announce future actions and rallies all over the country in the next weeks, and over 400,000 people have already signed up for updates. And so here's a little bit more from the RMT's Mick Lynch to take us out. 40% of it is coming as a uh, carbon energy. 40% of our energy is coming from the wind. Surely we can own the wind and the rain in this country. <laughs> and what it could give us is a bounty. Starmer seems to have no idea that that might appeal to working class people. No idea that it's a good value in and of itself. It's what we founded the Labour Party on, my union. The predecessor, the Society of Railway Servants, founded that organisation, and now we're no longer able to affiliate it to it because it has no content and no identity with working people in this country anymore. Energy prices and renationalizing the energy industry were big topics at the Enough is Enough campaign launch, and last week we also saw wildcat strikes in the oil industry in Scotland and Wales. Just the latest critical infrastructure workers essential throughout the pandemic, and particularly now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine destabilizing oil and gas access across the world, to make demands on the job. So this week we are talking about energy workers in Britain and beyond. What happened with these wildcat strikes? What's the history of energy worker power in Britain? How is all of this affecting the cost of living crisis? And will nationalizing energy companies solve our problems? To answer all these questions and much more, I spoke with Ewan Gibbs, a historian of energy industry work and protest, a lecturer in global inequalities at the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Glasgow, and the author of Coal Country, The Meaning and Memory of Deindustrialization in Postwar Scotland. Let's start out by talking about the wildcat oil refinery strikes that happened this week. Um, Briefly, sort of tell us what happened and and who walked off the job. Yeah, so there's been an industrial dispute, an unofficial, as you said, industrial dispute uh, kicked off earlier this month. Uh, Actually, several oil refineries across the UK uh, was workers who were employed under an agreement known as the National Agreement for the Engineering Construction Industry. So it was largely maintenance and repair workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was particularly interested in the strike in Grangemouth, which is Scotland's only oil refinery, a, a very large facility, supplies all, basically all of Scotland's petrol and large amounts of petrol to Northern Ireland and parts of Northern England as well. And there was a couple of hundred workers that were on strike there, but other facilities include the natural gas plant at Moss Morin in Fife, which is essentially just across the River Forth from Grangemouth in Scotland, Mm. Uh, the Pembroke oil refinery in Wales, and also uh, facilities on on Humberside on the east coast of England. I think what's interesting about these strikes is at this stage, at least, these are unofficial actions. Uh, They're led by workplace activists. They're also largely workers who are employed as contractors, although they are obviously very important to the functioning of these sites. And that tells us a story about the reorganisation of, of the industry, that actually 
large amounts of the workforce now in, in the oil and gas sector, both offshore and onshore, are not employed directly by their employers. And often their employers are not the oil majors that we might be familiar with buying petrol. Yeah. So when we're talking about um, these plants, and particularly the Grangemouth plant, like what's the history of labor in these places? What's the history of these kinds of industrial disputes? So I think if we're specifically, it's useful to think about Grangemouth perhaps as an example of these these larger changes. So Grangemouth's history uh, goes back almost a century and it's actually part of the beginning of the UK becoming an oil economy as opposed to a coal economy or maybe more specifically a petroleum economy. Uh, It was actually built it was built where it is in, in the Firth of Forth because of the convenience of uh, supplying it with imported uh, oil from the Middle East, mm. uh, by British Petroleum, as it was then. But it was also built because there was a workforce nearby that was accustomed to working in the shale oil industry. So you actually had relevant skills from a different form of oil extraction. Grangemouth expanded under BP ownership and in the mid-20th century it was a booming area of Scotland that became associated with the production of petrochemicals as well as refined oil and Mm -hmm. it was also connected to the North Sea oil and gas uh, industry through the 40s pipeline system so something like a third of the oil which is produced in the UK comes through the 40s pipeline system. So it's a strategically important um, location. I think what's probably more important from our point of view is that in the mid-2000s, BP started to divest themselves of refining facilities in Britain. They sold Grangemouth and it was bought shortly after that by a company called Ineos, if any of your listeners watch cycling, they might be familiar with the cycling team Ineos Grenadiers that compete in the Tour de France. Ineos mm-hmm. um, is owned and controlled by a, a figure, uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who emerged out of the petrochemicals industry as a background as an engineer. And he developed this business model based on buying up these uh, refineries that weren't wanted anymore by these outgoing oil majors. And that was based on cutting costs, obviously. Mm. It was based on um, getting rid of the sorts of relatively comfortable, consensual social relations that had perhaps been the norm and getting rid of the styles of compensation uh, that that included, the forms of economic security that offered. So in 2008, uh, one of... One of the major developments at Grangemouth was an attempt by by Ratcliffe and Ineos to slash compensation for workers, particularly to attack their pensions. This actually backfired really badly Mm. and resulted in a three-day strike. Uh, Petrol supplies were were seen to be threatened. And Ineos actually had to back down on that occasion. And so... That actually increased the reputation and standing, I think, of the, the Unite Union organisation at Grangemouth mm-hmm. and the standing of the local branch officials there. Um, the next major flashpoint happened in 2013. Well, there was two. There was another attempt to attack the conditions of tanker drivers on this occasion, which failed. But then late that year, um, 
displaying the, I think, the importance of the energy sector intermingling, I guess, with high politics in, in Britain, there was a, your listeners might not be familiar with the fact that actually a major Labour Party scandal came to centre on Grangemouth. So, oh, really? Yeah, so um, Stevie Deans, Stephen Deans, who was one of the officials in the Unite branch, uh, perfectly legitimately was was putting himself forward to uh, it was well it wasn't putting himself forward he was supporting um candidates to become he was supporting can he was he was involved in labor politics in Falkirk and which is nearby and um he was involved in signing up supporters to join the party mm-hmm. um and this became a political scandal it became part of anti-trade union sentiment in the British press um yeah. This shadowy hand of uh, trade union money and influence, or, <laughs> or, you know, in the like, Labour Party. Oh my God! I know, shocking, shocking. <laughs> Britain's biggest trade union at the time would uh, seek to get uh, pro Labour candidates elected on a, a Labour Party ticket. This became the trigger for a a major dispute at the plant. Um, Deans was put under investigation, but this then became a provocation uh, to really attack paying conditions. Um, I remember going down to Grangemouth to support the lockdown workers in I think October 2013, and it felt pretty grim. It was a day like today uh, in Glasgow. It was uh, overcast. It was raining. It was cold. Um, there was some supporters playing bagpipes outside, but it felt like a lament, to be honest yeah. with you. Um, and, uh, you know, had very bad outcomes. Significant major concessions had to be made by Unite just to keep the plant unionised, essentially. Um, so no strikes were agreed for three years. There was an end to final salary pensions. So uh, the drastic reduction in pensions sought in 2008 was in some ways achieved. There was an end to union conveners having their entire work time off to deal with union business as well. Mm-hmm. This was seen as a humiliating climb down for the, the union. But yeah. I think what's also significant about this is that there was an element of a strike of capital going on here. That actually any of us were seeking and sought significant inducements from the Scottish government and from the UK government to maintain Grangemouth. It's obviously integral to energy security and also to levels of economic activity in central Scotland and arguably Scotland as a whole. Uh, and, and they were relatively successful in achieving this. Uh, I've used this as a, a case study in classes about for students about, you know, class power in Scotland today because you yeah. had this this moment where Jim Ratcliffe, he has a yacht, a luxury <laughs> yacht that he sails around the world and he was apparently stationed in there well, it was reported in the media that this yacht was stationed in the Caribbean at the time was making these decisions about the, the future of Grangemouth so it was quite a striking uh, display of, of what capital and power looks like I yeah. think, in temporary Britain and Scotland yeah absolutely and so from there is that also what led to the increase in the use of contractors in, in facilities like this one I think there's a longer a longer trajectory there, but that yeah. certainly it certainly helps, doesn't it? I think what's also interesting about this, and I should cite the the work of a postgraduate research student, Ryoko Shebi, who's 
going to start a PhD on Grangemouth very soon and has been doing master's research on it already. She's um, looking at the increasing disconnection, if we want, between location and workplace. The rise of contracting work of maybe less long-term employment and in, along with the, the overall decrease in employment levels, encourages a dissociation between the economic welfare of localities mm-hmm. and these these workplaces when historically they'd actually been quite strongly intertwined. Right, right. And this is something that you, of course, write about in, in your work on coal, the way that um, workers felt an ownership over the industry and the, the plants and their communities through that. Yeah, no, that's that's right. Um, and I think, I, I guess, the, the language I use in relation to deindustrialization and, and the growing disconnection there is about what I call a moral economy, a mm-hmm. sense that communities that have grown up around and then served a sector, uh, you, you get a growing sense that these workplaces belong to the workforce collectively and I think there's an important sense of collective ownership it's not about an individual rights to, to right. buy or sell our job far from it um, and a sense that yeah there is a relationship between enterprise government and and communities and I think that extends probably across energy provision as a whole I think you certainly mm-hmm. see disappointment in Grangemouth for instance over the 90s and 2000s around that restructuring and I think it's also connected probably to an understanding that the products that these plants, mines, factories produce are essential goods. I, I, I interviewed a, an official from Prospect, which is actually one of the management unions who's responsible for coal power stations. And he said, well, my members and, and the workers that they manage for the most part don't view electricity as a as a commodity, they see it as, as as them providing a public service. Right, right, exactly, and that that's a really important thing. Obviously, in in a country where whether energy is going to be nationalized or not, and the various parts of production of it are going to be nationalized or not, is has been a contentious issue for quite a while. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting that. You know, electricity was privatised more than 30 years ago, or certainly the process started more than 30 years ago in the UK. It's interesting to me that there's a sense, though, amongst the workforces in that sector, and I think you'd probably find this in areas like public transport as well, which has been mm-hmm. privatised similarly, and water maybe in England and Wales as well, that it doesn't matter that these formerly privatised industries are or probably publicly owned industries are now privatised, the workforce probably still understand what they do in some ways in public service terms. And certainly you're right that in recent years, there's obviously been an increasingly animated discussion about public ownership, uh, firstly through, I think, the Labour Party and under Jeremy Corbyn, bringing this subject back into high politics. Also through continued opinion polling, incidentally, which mm-hmm. demonstrates that Despite decades of um, what we might call a neoliberal political consensus in Britain, uh, certainly a consensus that key sectors of the economy should be in private hands, public support for for nationalisation has actually remained pretty high. Um, But now that we're obviously having the energy crisis, a massive attack on people's living standards and huge amounts of state subsidies being very publicly handed over potentially to yeah. 
private companies as being the only seeming collective solution to this problem out with nationalisation. It, yeah. It's certainly been put back on the agenda, I think. Yeah. So I want to get back into that later, but before we get off of the Grangemouth question, so what are the workers' demands in these in these walkouts that we've seen this past couple of weeks? So this is basically about pay. And it's about the context that we've just discussed. Like actually energy workers are just as affected by inflation and high energy prices as right. else. Um so the the workers on the particular agreement that, that I mentioned, the National Agreement for Engineering Construction Industry, um, they were they were granted a wage rise of two and a half percent a year over two years, so a five percent wage rise um, in twenty twenty one, which didn't seem terrible at the start of twenty twenty one. It seems terrible now when, right. depending on how you count inflation, it's running at six or maybe even yeah, something like six times that potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're they're demanding the reopening of discussions on their wages, and then some employers have selectively granted them one off payments and improvements. You know, I reckon the other context that for energy workers is the knowledge that to some extent the sector they work in is flush, right? Right, um, exactly. <laughs> especially especially incidentally, if you work offshore, I've read reports of industrial action being organized on oil rigs via telegram. Mm. Um, you know, in sectors like that where you know that production is making huge profits right now and that any threat to production is a threat to those profits. Uh, mm-hmm. Workers potentially have a lot of power. Um, yeah. Just one other thing, I think mm-hmm. the strategic importance of Grangemouth and oil refineries and other sites like it is really yeah. crucial, but I think Grangemouth is really attached to that pipeline point. I had a, a chat the other day with a uh, a contact who I, I interviewed in my research who used to be a civil servant who, who dealt with um, tax affairs for offshore oil rigs. He made the point to me that actually, obviously, the flows of oil are really important. Over half a million barrels a day go through the 40s pipeline, but so do sizable portions of um, UK continental shelf gas production. And you can't separate them. You can't. So it's not just it's not just that Grangemouth is an oil refinery and therefore right. that refinery production is hit. It's all that oil that goes through the pipeline, but also then related gas. And at a point where, like, obviously gas security, gas supply is a major subject. Right. I don't think that was picked up very much in the public discussions around this, but it's really important we understand the realities of these infrastructures, which actually create what. Timothy Mitchell and his, his work on energy workers' terms, chokeholds, like points mm-hmm. of power for um for relatively small groups of workers, like you know, a few hundred workers actually. Um that's one of the effects, I guess, of going from a relatively decentralized coal production economy to right. an increasingly centralized uh, hydrocarbons one in some respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because you write about this um, again in your book about the way that um, coal sort of went from being decentralized to more centralized and then gone and that a big goal of the crackdown on coal from Thatcher, but from earlier politicians was to um, break up labor militancy. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, I, I'll reference Mitchell again. I think his book Carbon Democracy is, is a very interesting book. Um and it and it makes the provocative and important proposition that 
we should understand energy transitions through class power and the motivations to instigate changes in energy sources and the organization of energy economies is, is motivated in part by labor relations. Capital organizing is domination. And I would argue, and I think maybe something that Mitchell doesn't stress as much as the key role of the state in that, in that story as well, particularly in the, the story that I tell in coal country. And as you say, yeah, I've got quotations there from the mid-1950s as Britain starts to move out of being an overwhelmingly coal-fired country, you know, a country where people's houses, where transport and electricity is largely coal-fired to one where oil has replaced coal as the dominant fuel by 1970s. That's a really short time period. Huge changes. Um, And I've got quotes, I think, particularly from 1955 when there was an unofficial strike by miners in Yorkshire, which was Britain's biggest coal production area, and a strike by railwaymen. So that that is the, the coal infrastructure, if we want. So yeah. the coal miners, but also the transport that is also crucial for moving coal to power stations for electricity production. And I've got um, several servants in the Ministry of Fuel and Power and a Tory, uh, Tory ministers uh, rubbing their hands with glee, talking mm-hmm. about how, well, actually, imported oil uh, transported by road haulage has been successful in, in seeing out yeah. the threat that those strikes pose. So, yeah, I think even at a relatively early stage, and at a stage that we think of as being marked by relatively consensual industrial relations, right. uh, we actually see those motivations of class power and mm-hmm. the objective of displacing Britain's reliance on unionized coal miners and other allies that they have in, in organized labor is, is 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 evident at a pretty early point there. Right. Right. And it's it's interesting to just see the way that like this centralization again has produced um not just you know major vulnerabilities when say um you know there's a big war and uh, you can't get Russian oil for cheap the way we used to be able to get Russian oil for cheap. Um but also that yeah, relatively few workers, as you said, work in this industry, and yet they have enormous power because it's been so centralized to get rid of workers. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And you would think we may have learned, given <laughs> our those <laughs> in charge, our enemies, <laughs> domestic enemies, uh, may have learned because there was a, a, a not particularly dissimilar crisis in, in the early 1970s when... Um, particularly Western Europe and Britain's uh, reliance on imported oil from the Middle East was exposed. Mm. Um, there was a there was another war um, with the Arab-Israeli war, which ultimately led to the, the oil producers um, disrupting supplies and, and, you know, taking steps that ultimately quadrupled the price of oil. And the response to that, over time across Western Europe was to try and lessen reliance on imported oil, but ultimately ended in increasing reliance on imported Russian gas. Mm. Um, but also the destabilization of publicly owned energy systems as well took place. Um, 
As an aside to that, and as part of that process that you're talking about, actually, coal miners were made powerful in Britain again in the early 70s through mm-hmm. that experience. And there was a lot less of them, and they'd been concentrated in smaller numbers of very large pits. And they were supplying an increasingly small number of very big power stations. And actually, what, what that resulted in, in, in strikes, again, over wages and conditions of high, relatively high inflation, so quite like the ones we'll see now, actually, was uh, energy workers and coal miners in particular using that power that they had in targeting those relatively vulnerable sites. Um, in Scotland, it was the Long Annet power station in, in Fife, which was supplied directly by drift mines uh, dug below the River Forth, so not that far from Grangemouth yeah. or the the gas plant. Um, that was targeted by by striking miners who tried to block supplies of coal from coming in. It was quite contentious picket lines. Um, a number of them were actually arrested and charged with the serious act of mobbing and rioting. Uh, ultimately, they were they were admonished. But um, I think the most significant point is actually the point you're making about how these changes in energy systems can increase workers' power when they were designed in theory to to diminish the importance of coal miners or refinery workers or or other uh, electricity production workers that actually the concentration of production into a smaller number of sites and also then the dependency on the transmission across more and more complex systems does create the potential for what we might term sabotage um, or disruption. Yeah, I think... um... It's really, really interesting, right? I mean, as, as we say, capital contains the seeds of its own destruction, right? But um, it's all obviously happening right now. Again, if we're seeing um, workers, again, very aware of the strategic power that they hold, even if they have been subcontracted and subcontracted again, in a moment when we're all talking about the cost of living, which is is largely right now a crisis because of the cost of energy, this connection being made... Um, at least by some of the workers, is is um, potentially really exciting, I guess. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I think there's a, there's a broader picture, actually, in Britain in particular, of, of probably growing public sympathy for industrial action. Um, the response to the, the railway strike has been very interesting in, in that respect. That I don't remember public transport strikes in the past going down very well. Um, I can remember when the charismatic um, Bob Crow was leader of the Rail and Maritime Transport Union. He once in an interview where he was pressed on public dislike for his relatively well-paid, well-organised workers responded with the Millwall football chant, no one likes us, we don't care, (laughs) which was very funny. Uh, But, you know, it's very interesting that Mick Lynn, the character not unlike Bob Crow in many respects, he's a He's witty, he's he's well, he's very knowledgeable about his sector. He's a proponent of combative trade unionism. He's been very well received. Yeah. Um, and I don't not just by the usual suspects. Um so I think that's part of the context. But I think in particular, seeing the energy system almost humanized is quite important here. Mm. Understanding that. These companies are not just faceless corporations, and for ta- perhaps a figure like Jim Ratcliffe actually as a, a public enemy is quite useful for that in that respect. He's right. uh, 
He's announced today that he's going to try and buy Manchester United's uh, football club. <laughs> Isn't this after Elon Musk did or said he did and then changed his mind because yeah, Elon Musk doesn't actually like do things? Doing that. I think I think the Premier League is for petrol giants. It's not for tech billionaires. So that, <laughs> yeah. Roman Abramovich was chucked out of um, his ownership of Chelsea because he's an oil and gas um, magnate from Russia because of the, the war in Ukraine. But... A couple of uh, Middle Eastern hedge funds also own football teams. Uh, I won't go through too far down this digression, but I, I think the the point is that when you have these energy systems being understood as as the product of the work of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of workers, and the energy bosses are actually seen as vulnerable to their power, I think that starts to change our discussion and understanding of what's going on here. You know, as you say, it is a the cost of living crisis is right now in Britain primarily a cost of energy crisis. There is certainly a cost of food and other related product uh-huh. element, I think, which yeah. is an inflection of the energy point. But it's really important, I think, that the labour movement is able to like answer that line of it's the economy and that's what happens in the economy. We <laughs> actually. Right. Right. start to have a discussion about, well, who determines the price of energy? How do we yeah. change the price of energy for consumers? How do we ensure that energy systems actually provide rewards for those that work in them and for the public can actually serve the ends of an environmentally as well as socially sustainable society? Um, yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, the emergent campaigns that we're seeing mm-hmm. around consumers make those links with with workers. I think there's potential for doing that. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I we did not cross paths while I was in Glasgow, unfortunately, but I did make it to the, the rally outside of Scottish Power on Friday and um, also to the Enough is Enough launch rally last night here in London. And the way that these are union-led initiatives, or at least union-backed initiatives, that are trying to find places for people who aren't in the union to um, connect to and to be part of, um, that that does sort of connect that identity as consumer to that identity of, as worker. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's, that, that's just central now. Um, and I think part of what's happening now when you have those relatively well-organized, relatively powerful, relatively confident workers making a mark, it serves as an inspiration for others, uh, mm-hmm. both as workers and consumers. Um, there's been some really interesting strikes recently in the UK. I'm very dubious of the word spontaneous. Wildcats are much better. Right. Um, right. But there were walkouts at Amazon, three Amazon factories mm-hmm. in England um, earlier this month, I think, and Late last month, there was a there was a walkout at a, at a factory, a food factory in Lancashire, and mm-hmm. these were walkouts that were essentially about pay. Um, although clearly there was an undertone of discontent with paying con- with with conditions and treatment in the workplace and questions about dignity. Um, but I think that they're also a reflection on the one hand of you know the macro conditions in the economy, but but also of actually an atmosphere where people are taking strike action and is relatively mm-hmm. popular. Um, I'm sure that there must be a demonstration effect there. And I think what we're seeing around the energy question is also a really important repoliticization 
And I think something that privatization really aimed to achieve was to depoliticize energy. Yeah. In a lot of ways in, in Britain and certainly subjects such as electricity and gas prices could just be written off as that's the economy. That's how it works. That's the world market. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, you know, and you even got though you get these kind of sub-political forms of regulation like off-gen, the, the the watchdog and the setting of this price cap, which seems to be absolutely pointless given that it goes up every time the 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 energy price goes up. So there's very little protection actually provided there. Um right. the current circumstances have created a renewed debate. And I think targeting Scottish power is actually really good. I'm really glad the Power to the People campaign did that. I think we should obviously be targeting politicians in government, but actually holding these conglomerates to account is is really, really important. Um, interestingly as well, um, Scottish power is, is misleadingly named. Uh, <laughs> it's actually... Um, Owned by Ibradola, which is a, a multinational energy company uh, headquartered in the Basque Country in, in Spain. Of uh, course. <laughs> not in Spain, I should say, you know, but in the yes. Spanish state, Spanish yes. territory. Uh, but yeah, so there's, I mean, that that's, a, that's just one example. The energy sector in the UK has been privatized and now bought up by those sorts of companies, one of which is actually EDF, which is a nationalised company from France. That has a very direct effect on workers as well in the energy supply industry and the energy production industry. Um, and actually, Grangebaum is an interesting example of that. I should qualify slightly what I said before. It is owned by Ineos and, and Sir Jim Ratcliffe, but actually it's owned by a, a, a vehicle called Petrol Ineos now. And the petrol bit comes from petrol China. So it's a combination of sort of freewheeling uh, liberal market capitalism and odd state-owned enterprises from mm. other countries. So that's the state-owned Chinese oil company. who mm. also own portions of uh, offshore production in the North Sea now. Right. Right, and and uh, there's no way that could ever backfire. <laughs> no, 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 not at all, not at all. But yeah, I mean, I, I, and obviously, it's really easy to to fall into sort of cheap nationalism on this stuff, especially around China, which is getting just really ugly in places. But like the way that this stuff um, gets, like that the the one of the effects of privatization is that these things get scattered outwards and you don't sort of see who owns things and and you end up with what my former co-podcast host uh, Josh Idelson calls the who's the boss problem um but also you end up with like the public sort of not really understanding how this sector works at all whereas with coal that seemed to be fairly obvious in part maybe because it was dispersed and a lot of people knew somebody who was a coal miner knew where the pit was yeah no i think that's a a really valuable point and it's something i've been thinking about quite a lot in my recent work um i think there's an ownership question but there is also a point about shifting technological systems you're right that well firstly people actually often burnt coal in their own homes uh, you know, that that was very common in Britain until within living memory. 
I did actually interview a woman called Margaret Wegg and her, her husband Jerry in a, a house that was built for for miners in the new nationalised industry. They still had a coal-fired house, and and some people, very few people, still have that. But coal was a known quantity, as you say, in large parts of Britain. Everybody probably knew somebody, but it was a visible system as well, and it was a system that that was national, certainly from the nineteen forties till the nineteen nineties. It was a it was a nationally owned enterprise. It supplied nationally owned power station systems. I'd argue what happens over the second half of the 20th century is the energy labour becomes more and more invisible as we start mm-hmm. to use more and more energy as, as as a national economy and as individual consumers of energy. Um, partly because the number of coal miners shrink, as we were discussing earlier, and, and coal miners are employed in, in relatively small numbers of large units. And also, actually, power stations leave city centres. Like power stations mm-hmm. used to be urban uh, predominantly, but then they're increasingly built out of town. And in the cases of nuclear in particular, they're actually deliberately built in relatively remote locations, which right. become highly dependent often on nuclear, particularly West Cumbria, which is a former coal field in, in northwest England. But that means the rest of the country doesn't see this form of production nearly as much. And in the UK, obviously, oil and gas is an offshore industry for the most part. And then the rest of us very highly depend on these pipelines under the ground that we never see. All those, as well as the shifts in in ownership, contribute to the invisible nature of of energy labour. Nevertheless, Mm -hmm. we all depend on it. And, And I think that makes those explosions of you know, those moments like the strikes at Grangemouth in 2008, in particular mm-hmm. when supplies were threatened, or those earlier minor strikes in the 70s, quite interesting because they actually then raise these questions about what I might call energy citizenship. So mm. the relationships between producers and consumers, the obligations to, to government and the role of government in, in regulating that and ensuring that energy is available at a just price, but also that workers enjoy some sort of economic reward and communities that depend on those sectors are given some sort of economic security. The the context of climate change, particularly in Scotland, I think, has raised these questions as well, around, particularly around oil and gas in in northern Scotland. Right, right. I mean, um, Scotland hosted the uh, the COP meeting this, uh, this fall, was it? Autumn? Yeah, almost a year ago now. It's terrifying. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, I I, I mean, it's also just been a a crazy summer for for realizing the climate catastrophe being here. I mean, it was it was what it was. I mean, for our American listeners, it was like 80 degrees when I was in Scotland last week. So I don't know what that translates to, like 20 something (laughs) in Celsius. Um, And even in I mean, Glasgow, I guess the parks were still green, but like in Edinburgh, like it was brown and dead and it's been brown and dead in London. It's been really um, sort of frightening to see like Britain in drought conditions. It's just not a thing you really conceive of until the parks are brown. It's actually been quite worrying to me how little the public discussion or certainly the political discussion um, has actually connected those two phenomena. 
that we're having a debate about the price at which we burn more and more fossil fuels in our homes and our cars. And at the same time, we're living through very visible climate change. Yeah. And it is concerning to me, to be honest, that we're not having a discussion even in this context about, you know, why are we not installing heat pumps everywhere? Why are we not, you know, getting out of gas heating systems, which are now showing themselves to be economically and socially as unsustainable as they are environmentally? We could be talking about creating jobs for hundreds of thousands of, of construction workers and engineers and people with the sorts of skills who are on strike right now, actually. We could be retrofitting our housing stock. I mean, Scotland's housing stock is in desperate need of insulation and investment, and it it's contributing massively to fuel poverty, ill health, and other economic inequalities. And right. there's a, a paucity of ambition there. I, I hope that what we see around the workplace mobilisations and also the Power to the People campaign and other other um, energy activism is actually a will to to make this about developing real proposals that could be implemented by, you know, pressurised suitably local and national governments as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really, um, it's striking, not to use that word too much, that, that, that like we're seeing all of this energy around union campaigns and particularly, I think it's not an accident that, that people are really um, invested in these rail strikes, right? Because obviously we need functional trains if uh, we're going to get through a climate crisis. Like we need to be encouraging more people to take the train rather than having private cars, things like that. Um, and the way that that provides like an, an understand or possible understanding potential for understanding let's say um the way that the system works right that you know the oil the gas the coal to whatever degree it's still being used from somewhere else um where it comes from how it's refined who's doing that labor how that then becomes the thing that powers the trains how all of these systems um work in a way that could make for a greener world than all of us being in our privatized ubers and maybe eventually the ubers are electric and yeah, and in this space, um, you know, I, I haven't seen as much, and maybe this will change, people talking about the electric or the um the Grangemouth workers and the other um oil workers that are have been striking. But there is a renewed conversation around nationalizing the energy sector. Um, and that is Again, it's really potentially interesting, as you said earlier. It's popular among vast swathes of the pop uh, the public, including the Conservative Party. And yeah, but I mean, you've also pointed out that that nationalization is also not a panacea for all of these problems. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right that hopefully this creates a space where you can start to visualize the alternatives. Um, the much more positive alternatives in, in social and e economic terms as well as environmental ones, ones that are based on a sense that actually workers and communities do have power and the potential to create real changes that, that then become, you know, institutionalised facts on the ground, like real improvements and in, in ways of, of running transport and ways of regulating housing in particular are two of the massive uh, problems that 
we face at the moment. And it, it is quite galling in some ways that it's as the climate crisis is actually really starting to embody itself in Britain and other countries that also all our public infrastructure is, is really being exposed. So there's, there's hope and there's, there's, there's cause for, for concern there, I think. But I, I do think that the discussion around nationalisation needs to go beyond, I guess, the sense that we need to do this right now to make people's energy bills remotely affordable. That's, you know, that's an obvious and important um, starting point. It also has to be about what, what character do we want? What sort of uh, energy sector do we want, for instance? And, and how are we going to manage these changes, actually? I feel a lot's been said about a just transition, especially in Scotland. I'm not nearly as convinced that that much has actually been done. And I, I, I've got a lot of sympathy, frankly, for oil and gas workers and, and actually workers in nuclear power stations um, who have got, you know, obtained relatively well-paid positions that rely on skills that developed over a very long time that are partly the result of strong union organisation in some cases. You know, I can understand them being very, very doubtful about what's currently on offer to them. And, you know, this has real impacts. I think most of the discussion has been about Northern Scotland, uh, Mm -hmm. Aberdeenshire, the Highlands and Islands and and the oil economy. In the longer term, though, you know, we're not really... Are we talking about moving beyond petrochemicals? I mean, I think that's a a discussion that's been oddly absent, actually, given that our whole world is made out of petrochemicals. Um, right. But also there's questions about power stations. Um, Scotland's second last nuclear station is no longer supplying the grid. It's still going through a decommissioning um, in Hunterston in Ayrshire, which is a former coal mining area. So you've got areas experiencing waves of closures in that sense and the long-term impacts. Yeah. There's one more power station, nuclear station in East Lothian called Torness. At some point in the next 10 to 15 years, I guess, that'll probably close. Um, What are we going to do about that? You know, there will be jobs in decommissioning for a longer time period and we could actually obtain national expertise in decommissioning, which I think would be a really useful thing um, that would potentially help others out with. there's an odd, there's, I mean, there's a bigger debate about nuclear and the future of nuclear that I don't really want to go into here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But one of the things that I, I haven't finished reading your book yet, so I apologize. Um, but I want, um, I was struck by, because I know this history a bit more in the States, the way that, um, union leaders in the National Union of Mine Workers um, were willing to talk about like pit closures and moving away from coal as work. And they were not sort of, super attached to everybody must go down in a hole and dig out coal by hand with a pickaxe forever. Um, as long as it was done in a way that actually provided the workers um, had real input and could make decisions again, collectively about their communities. Yeah. I mean, most of most miners in my, or certainly a large portion of miners didn't want their sons to become miners, which isn't yeah. particularly surprising, I guess, when we think about what that job involved. Um, mm-hmm. And 
the operation of uh, what I termed the moral economy earlier and didn't really explain, I think is very important in understanding that. So I, I would argue that between the 1940s and the 1970s, the closure of coal mines in Britain was managed, or certainly in Scotland, which I've studied, was managed pretty well for the most part. Um, yeah. Miners were broadly um, given the opportunity to discuss closure through their trade union. Um, they were offered some sort of alternative employment, which was roughly compensated for the position they'd lost in terms of skill and pay. And it was usually practicable. It was within some sort of travelling distance of their home. I mean, you know, there were serious costs incurred through closures as well. I mean, older men were broadly often made redundant. Disabled workers may have had the same fate, or they were given forms of economic compensation for that. Um, it stretched the meaning of locality quite dramatically until by the 1980s you have miners travelling across the central belt of Scotland for work every day. But nevertheless, like there was important forms of economic security provided there, and that did allow the transition to a more diversified industrial economy in Scotland in the middle of the 20th century. And that included the opening of new factories that were cleaner, safer, paid men and women, importantly, created new industrial employment opportunities, particularly for the women workforce and, and coalfield communities. So, you know, I think these sorts of transitions are possible where you have relatively powerful trade unions, uh, well-organised communities, and also governments and policymakers within government at civil service level, I think, as well, is often probably quite important there, that are willing to operate on that basis yeah uh, you know, and yeah i think there is a lot to learn from that in terms of what we're talking about just now but i think you need to prove it in action to people to get people to buy into it like i do have a, i do have a lot of sympathy for oil and gas and nuclear workers just now and the current experience of the renewables sector in scotland hasn't been exactly affirming you are yeah yeah, so I guess to wrap up, um, we've talked a little bit throughout this conversation about the different campaigns that are happening from the wildcat strikes to the power to the people campaign, the enough is enough, maybe we didn't mention, but should mention the don't pay UK, the organizing of, of people um, striking from paying these exorbitant energy bills. Um, what's some advice that you would have to all of these campaigns and maybe the fact that there are many of them is part of the advice at Connect. Um, but yeah, what would you sort of say to people who are organizing in and around energy consumption and production um, as we look forward to a maybe another winter of discontent? Oh, we can but hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that they need to understand and they need a basic comprehension of what the energy system looks like. Um in terms of its different parts and its forms of production and where that production comes from. Like I, I think it's been really striking that the discussion about energy prices and consumption in the UK has, for instance, not addressed the fact that over 40% of our gas, the gas we consume in our homes, is produced in the North Sea. And we could exercise, you know, government, the nation, for lack of a better expression, could exercise a lot of influence over that. Um, that's an obvious example. 
I'd say secondly, through that, I think we need some sort of unity, hopefully, between workers and consumers. I think we're starting to see that through trade union support for the the campaigns. I think thirdly, we need to identify and discuss points of weakness in of, of of the enemy of of the privatized energy companies in particular, and organize around that. So be that supporting striking workers, be that. I think we need to have a discussion about non-payment, to be honest with you, but be that supporting some sort of campaigns that target the companies and disrupt their systems. Um, that would be a really good starting point, I think. I think like we need to have a campaign which is not just about political pressure and lobbying, but is actually about exercising forms of economic power that I think both workers and energy consumers do have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those uh, absolutely critical sectors of the economy without which nothing else can happen. And um, yeah, there are lots of ways to stick a wrench in the gears. Absolutely. And we need to have faith that we can do that. And I, I believe that we can. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was historian Ewan Gibbs of the University of Glasgow and author of Coal Country, The Meaning and Memory of Deindustrialization in Postwar Scotland. My pick for ARG is Inside the Elite, Underpaid, and Weird World of Crossword Writers by Matt Hartman in The New Republic. It's an intriguing glimpse into the exclusive, elite, and slightly cultish subculture of crossword constructors, the people who make puzzles like the Sunday Times crossword, as well as online crossword games. Remember when the word game world was disrupted by the emergence of Wordle a few months ago, the word guessing game that took the internet by storm before it was bought by the New York Times? People fell in love not just with the game, but also with the story behind it. It wasn't created by some linguistic genius, but a humble software engineer who did it for the love and shared it with friends before it went viral. Crossword construction works very much the same way. For many people, it's not so much vocation as avocation. But while this idealized image of the crossword constructor as a super hobbyist is charming, it also reflects the elitism built into the crossword industry. Some constructors have been trying to change that with initiatives to boost diversity among constructors, but that doesn't always work out. Hartman writes, quote, it turns out the crossword industry really does consist of earnest wordplay lovers donating their time to unpaid mentorships, generally as part of an industry-wide effort to bring new and underrepresented people into crosswords. Unfortunately, the end result might be even more exclusive than a pay-to-play scheme. In a game that brings the Times at least 1 million monthly subscribers at $1.25 a week or $40 a year, provides a sustainable living wage for shockingly few people, unquote. Now, it's not just about skills. Your success as a constructor in large part depends on who you know. There's an inside network of mentorships that novice constructors enter into when they want to break into the field. In recent years, crossword mentors have developed an online space explicitly aimed at diversifying crosswords by recruiting people from underrepresented groups, that is, everyone other than white guys, basically. But Hartman points out that the crossword puzzle collaboration directory may simply be reinforcing the elitism that is deeply interwoven into crossword culture. He writes, quote, the Facebook group launched in 2018 with an associated Google form that pairs newcomers with mentors. It has always been explicit about its aims to provide resources to underrepresented groups. 
The explicit mentions aren't enough, though, and in fact, at times the group has served the opposite purpose, unquote. It seems the group has not significantly diversified the field in terms of underrepresented racial, gender identity, or sexual orientation groups. Now, some of that might come with the territory. I mean, let's face it, the world of crosswords just kind of lends itself to a certain kind of elite geekdom, whether you're a solver or a constructor. And that's partially why, as Hartman points out, crossword editors and mentors keep their subject matter pretty white bread. One interviewee pointed out that the, quote, mostly white constructors in the crossword puzzle collaboration directory, a space ostensibly devoted to being supportive of minority constructors, shut down a Latino constructor's idea for a chopped cheese-themed puzzle as a non-starter. In acting as mentors, established constructors reinforce the assumption that, say, pretty much any dead baseball player or Latin phrase is fair game, while references specific to minority cultures are out of bounds, unquote. Eric Agard, co-founder of the directory, acknowledges the systemic inequalities. According to a crossword data site, quote, Women only accounted for 13 to 19% of times puzzles in the 2010s, though interestingly, that rate was often better for the prestigious and better paid Sunday puzzle than the year as a whole. Around 30% of puzzles over the past two years had a woman constructor. Yet what gains there have been in diversity are largely contained to white women and white gay men, Agard says. Even a directory thread about a diverse crossword fellowship was dominated by white people, Agard added. The trend has been especially clear since COVID-19 handed those groups lots of free time and few ways to spend it. Agard said, quote, to the extent that people not from underrepresented groups are coming and using the resources of the group to further their constructing careers, it's not really addressing gaps, unquote. The fact that there is no X-word info data for race confirms his point, and class typically goes unmentioned altogether when constructors talk about diversifying crosswords, unquote. Finally, low pay is a big part of why no one can really make a living off of crosswords, except maybe puzzle master Will Shorts, and he's kind of in a league of his own. It's not totally unpaid. The New York Times crossword pays several hundred bucks a pop, so crossword constructing is kind of like being a freelance writer, I guess, which I can tell you is extremely hard to turn into a sustainable livelihood. But the underlying problem is not just financial. The structure of the crossword industry is built on the increasingly antiquated notion that crossword construction is on the one hand a labor of love, and on the other hand, an elite craft and hobby that must remain unsullied by the plebeian need for a decent wage. As we've discussed on Belabor before, society often exploits people's quote-unquote love for their work, in this case, the obsession with a kind of game that is both pastime and intellectual sport, and persuades them to believe it distasteful or immoral to demand fair compensation. The enthusiasm and passion that constructors bring to the field stand in for monetary compensation and become a pretext for paying people less, while praising them for their talent and passion. Similar patterns are observed in low-paid care professions like childcare, as well as elite college athletic teams that bank on the fiction of amateurism to extract profit from players. In many cases, the subjects of these exploitative structures are people of color, women, and immigrants. In the case of crosswords, many of those folks aren't able to break into the field at all. Heck, they may not even have time to sit down and do a crossword puzzle, because they're too busy working. The result is that the crossword world itself may ultimately suffer. How many creative ideas, esoteric clues, and diverse minds are shut out of the Sunday crossword just because they didn't fit in the box? I try to limit the amount of pieces from the biggest news outlets in the country that I do for ARG, because frankly, it's just difficult to compete with the amount of money the New York Times can throw at labor reporting when it chooses to. 
But every now and then, the way they do a story is worth commenting on, even if it frustrates me that those of us working freelance to cover a beat that most newspapers can't be bothered to staff will never be allowed that much time and money for a story. Because Jody Cantor and Arya Sundaram's piece, The Rise of the Worker Productivity Score, designed and produced for the web by Eliza Afriktig and Rumsey Taylor, really is worth it. We've talked plenty on this podcast about the various ways that companies track and surveil workers, but the multimedia design of this story was made to make you feel what it's like to have a tracker on your computer as you scroll. And what really struck me was the breadth of industries where productivity was being tracked. For example, they write, quote, The metrics are even applied to spiritual care for the dying. The Reverend Margot Richardson of Minneapolis became a hospice chaplain to help patients wrestle with deep, searching questions. This is the big test for everyone. How am I going to face my own death, she said. But two years ago, her employer started requiring chaplains to accrue more of what it called productivity points. A visit to the dying as little as one point. Participating in a funeral, one and three quarters points. A phone call to grieving relatives, one quarter point, end quote. This reminded me of a conversation I had years ago with Judy Sheridan Gonzalez of the New York State Nurses Association about nurses being penalized for so-called non-productive time. What on earth is productive about counseling the dying and the bereaved? Indeed, I might say, as someone working on a book about grief, that it's the ultimate in non-productivity, the last thing bosses can't capture. But Richardson's bosses were damn sure going to try. How horrifying. Cantor and Sundaram write, quote, In lower-paying jobs, the monitoring is already ubiquitous, not just at Amazon, where the second-by-second measurements became notorious, but also for Kroger cashiers, UPS drivers, and millions of others. Eight of the ten largest private U.S. employers track the productivity metrics of individual workers, many in real time, according to an examination by the New York Times. Now, digital productivity monitoring is also spreading among white-collar jobs and roles that require graduate degrees. Many employees, whether working remotely or in person, are subject to trackers, scores, idle buttons, or just quiet, constantly accumulating records. Pauses can lead to penalties from lost pay to lost jobs. End quote. And, well, there are many problems with all of this, but one of them is that the measurement doesn't actually work very well. They write, quote, Architects, academic administrators, doctors, nursing home workers, and lawyers described growing electronic surveillance over every minute of their workday. They echoed complaints that employees in many lower-paid positions have voiced for years, that their jobs are relentless, that they don't have control, and in some cases they don't even have enough time to use the bathroom. In interviews and in hundreds of written submissions to the Times, white-collar workers described being tracked as demoralizing, humiliating, and toxic. Micromanagement is becoming standard, they said. But the most urgent complaint spanning industries and incomes is that the working world's new clocks are just wrong, inept at capturing offline activity, unreliable at assessing hard-to-quantify tasks, and prone to undermining the work itself. United Health social workers were marked idle for lack of keyboard activity while counseling patients in drug treatment facilities, according to a former supervisor. Grocery cashiers said the pressure to quickly scan items degraded customer service, making it harder to be patient with elderly shoppers who move slowly. Ms. Kramer, the executive, said she sometimes resorted to doing busy work that is mindless to accumulate clicks. We're in this era of measurement, but we don't know what we should be measuring, said Ryan Fuller, former vice president for workplace intelligence at Microsoft. End quote. 
Of course, with all the surveillance, workers are finding ways to fight back with everything from gadgets that jiggle your mouse to create the appearance of work, because a jiggling mouse definitely indicates work and not being twitchy with boredom, to, of course, unionizing at places like Amazon. But bosses who profess to use the tools in moderation claim that these tools allow them, quote, to manage with newfound clarity, fairness, and insight, end quote, lol. Employers, naturally, are claiming that they need all these surveillance tools because they're magnanimously allowing workers to work from home in a pandemic-laden world. But the reality is they're applied wherever bosses can get away with them, from McDonald's to UPS to United Health. They write, For frustrated employers, or for companies navigating what to disclose to workers or how to deploy metrics in pay or firing decisions, the law provides little guidance. In many states, employers have carte blanche in how to implement these technologies to surveil workers, said Ifeoma Junwa, a law professor at the University of North Carolina. Many of today's workplace regulations, including the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, were written long before bottom performer dashboard displays were conceivable. A New York law that took effect this spring requires employers to disclose the type of information they collect, but efforts to enact a similar rule in California stalled amid opposition from business groups. The technology is just growing and improving so quickly, said Brian Kropp, the chief of research for Gartner's human resources practice. It's moving faster than employees realize it is, and a whole lot faster than government can regulate it. Investment in new workplace technologies has been soaring, according to Jason Corsello, a venture capitalist who called performance management one of the fastest growing categories with an eightfold increase in funding in the last five years, end quote. So this story is pretty grim, although it does note that after lots of agitation, organizing, union drives, and at least one victory, of course, at Staten Island, Amazon has quietly removed its time-off task metric, though of course workers are still being measured and surveilled. So all of this is a reminder of, well, a couple of things. One is that working time is still going to be the site of struggle between workers and their employers, whether those workers are white collar or blue or pink, or indeed even in a clerical collar. Another is that given a choice, employers will use technology and spend money to make workers' jobs more difficult in order to exert greater control rather than using technology to make the job easier. And finally, perhaps articles like this will remind white-collar workers that they often have more in common with workers in the warehouse at the end of the day than they do with their bosses. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on worker surveillance, barista unions, and all of the strikes that we can keep up with. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent who host us, to Natasha Lewis, and to now to Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you for listening to us, for sharing us, tweeting about us, talking about us to your friends, writing to us, and sharing your stories. We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you are using to listen to us. It really does help us find new listeners. Please, please give us a nice rating. We try very hard. Special thanks, of course, to those of you who have supported the show financially over the past nine years, oh my goodness, over at the Descent website or now at Patreon, patreon.com slash belabored. Really, really, really thank you because labor journalism is not valued. It is not paid well. It is a labor of love. And you know how I feel about labors of love. I'm opposed. And so it really is necessary for us to ask you for money, unfortunately, so that we can continue to do this kind of work and bring you these kinds of stories and in-depth conversations about nerdy topics like energy industry. 
So if you want to support us, if you want to share your story of working or organizing, you can, as always, email us at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org. If you are a train driver or an oil worker, a postal worker or a farm worker, we want to hear from you. You can, as always, tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thank you so very much for listening and all your support. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>